If you would, take your Bibles and open them to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. Just a word before we get into the sermon. Um, This is the horrific events of these past few days. Um, The 20 who were killed in El Paso and then today 9 in Dayton. Um, Ohio. Also, I think between 17 and 20 um, died in the Philippines uh, as a boat capsized in a typhoon. Just this loss of life is is really something. Um, should pray for those who have suffered great loss. John chapter 14. In our text, we come to some of the last words of Jesus the night before his death. By the way, the night before his death, we see him demonstrating um, servant, uh, servant heart, that is, he washed the feet of his disciples. We see him uh, instituting what we call the Lord's Supper, um, the chapter today, chapter 5, um, the book that's being read uh, before church, uh, talks about this. But Jesus also said some things. He demonstrated some things, but he also said some things. Follow along, if you would, as I read, beginning at verse number 15. John 14, beginning at verse 15. If you love me, you will obey what I command. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you. And he will be or is in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long the world will not see me anymore. But you will see me because I live. You also will live. On that day you will realize that I am in my Father. And you are in me and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and obeys them. He is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I too will love him and show myself to him. Then Judas not Judas Iscariot said, but Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the father who sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you, but the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. What are we to make of this passage? Um, In the past, as I've taught, uh, oftentimes there's assigned reading and I ask the students, I break them up into groups, put the reading into one or two or three words. If I were to tell you the passage I've just read, put it into one word, what would that word be? I would suggest that the word is Trinity. As one author has observed, I've often reflected on the rather obvious thought that when his disciples were about to have the world collapse in on them, our Lord spent so much of the time in the upper room speaking to them about the mystery of the Trinity. If nothing could underline the necessity of Trinitarianism for practical Christianity, that must surely be it. But did you hear it in the passage as I read it? 
We hear of the Father. We hear of the counselor that Jesus and the Father would send. I suspect that far too often we do not think of God as Trinity. Another author has reflected the doctrine of the Trinity was carefully filed in his own life in the drawer of things all good Christians believe and then never really be seen again. He continues, I had no immediate need to look further into the Trinity and a number of suspicions were holding me back. I'm going to read you the things that held him back because I suspect that we find these oftentimes within ourselves but certainly among God's people. First of all, it doesn't make sense. God is one. Oh, and he's also three. You get it? I didn't think so, he says. Secondly, it's not meant to make sense. It's just one of those things. It's not supposed to be understood. It's a mystery. We should not pry. If we try to analyze it in some rational, systematic way, we would miss the point. Thirdly, it's too technical. To get anywhere, you have to be a theologian. That is, you have to have studied in seminary. Fourthly, it's embarrassing. We commend the Christian faith on the basis that it makes sense. As we share the gospel with people, we say it makes sense. It's not irrational. But then someone asks about the Trinity and we're stumped. Fifthly, the author argues, it's irrelevant. Assuming we could make our way all through all the jargon and find a way to explain it, what are we meant to do with it? Yes, one God, three persons, but so what? What practical difference could it possibly make to my life? That is what I hope we will see in the weeks to come. All of these things that the author has observed are wrong. And again, it is my hope that the meditations in the weeks to come, we will come to see the importance and the practical application of the doctrine of the Trinity. As Christians, we confess one God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. So, some things for you to consider uh, for meditation, but as we look forward to the weeks to come. First of all, what the Trinity is and is not. Before his ascension... We find the following at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe or to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. First of all, the Trinity is not three gods. Jesus is not saying that there are three gods, an idea that's called tritheism. This is a caricature that people often make of the Christian faith, that somehow we believe in three separate deities, just simply put them all under the heading of God. But there is one God, only one God, not three. You will notice that Jesus does not say baptizing them in the names, plural, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, as though they were completely separate gods. Rather, he says, baptizing them in the name, singular, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Jesus speaks of the one name, the singular name of God, because there is one God, not three. Secondly, the Trinity is not three aspects. Um, It doesn't refer to three different aspects of God's being. 
This is called modalism, that God in different times has presented himself in different ways. So he's God the Father in the Old Testament, he's God the Son in the New Testament, and after the Ascension, he is God the Spirit. You will notice that Jesus also does not say in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, but in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, emphasizing the fact that the one name God belongs to each of these distinct persons. Okay. Thirdly, the Trinity is not a contradiction. It is not a contradiction to say that God is one, pers- or one God and three persons. Some would argue that this doesn't make sense and that it can't make sense. Those who say that, if they're Christians, they sort of bail and say, well, it's a mystery. You can't really comprehend it. If such people who say this are not Christians, it confirms their suspicions that Christianity is fundamentally irrational and can be ignored. But there is no contradiction in the Trinity. The way in which God is one is different from the way in which he is three. One writer put it this way. I think this is so helpful. God is not one something and also three of the same somethings. If we were to say God is one person and God is three persons, then that would be a contradiction. But that is not what we find in the Trinity. But the way in which God is one is not the same as the way in which he is three. He is one in name and in nature He is three in persons. Granted, uh, this is difficult to fully understand. But at least as we start, we need to recognize it's not a contradiction. It's not contradictory. It is the center of our faith. And more than that, it is that which stands behind all reality. It is the name into which we are baptized. The name of God. And it shows us that God is one and God is three persons. This is not something he becomes. Uh, somehow as the Bible unfolds, um, God becomes Trinity. It is who he is and has always been. God is one. And that one God is three persons. So that's the first thing, what the Trinity is not. Secondly, let's look at the Trinity throughout scriptures. When Jesus commanded his disciples to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Spirit, they must have had some inkling, they must have had some understanding of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. This is not an innovation. This isn't something that Jesus created. He's not presenting a new way of thinking about God because if he had, his disciples would what do you mean? What do you mean? that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The Trinity is who God has always been. Jesus is now shedding light and explaining something that God has always said about himself. God as Trinity in the Old Testament, this isn't simply a New Testament thing. We find the plurality of God in the first chapter of the Bible. As we read of God's creation, when he made humanity, there is a moment of deliberation which is revealing Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. 
this is so familiar, but consider that God does not say, let me make man in my image. Some have suggested, oh, but that's, he's talking about all the angels, that he had already created the angels, and so he's sort of having a conference with them about, let's make man in our image. Um, uh, no. The angels do God's bidding, but they are not co-creators. More than that, we are made in the image of God, of the creator, not the angels. So God's not speaking to the angels. We find this within the Trinity. And this is not the only conversation that we find in scripture among the Trinity. In Genesis 11, as people began to build the Tower of Babel, we read the following. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. In Isaiah chapter 6, following the death of King Uzziah, Isaiah has a vision of the Lord in the temple. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Again, God speaks of himself in the plural. He's not mere singularity. The plurality helps us make sense of strange things that seem to happen in the Old Testament. On several occasions, there is a a man, a human being, who, in fact, is identified as God. And yet he is distinct from God. In Genesis chapter 18, let me read the first two verses, the Lord appeared to Abraham. Okay, So it is the Lord who is appearing to him near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. So we're told that the Lord appeared to Abraham, but when Abraham looks up, he sees three men. He gets up, so we continue reading, he prepares a meal for them. During the meal, where is your wife? They asked him. There in the tent, he said. Then the Lord said, not the three men, but the one of the three men said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. After the meal, when the men got up to leave, they looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Later, we read, The men turned away and went toward Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Two of them are angels. They go down to Sodom and Gomorrah. The third man is, in fact, the Lord. And you might say, well, how do you know they're angels? Well, if you read the first verse of chapter 19, the two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. So, it is the Lord in human flesh with two angels, also in human flesh, who appeared to Abraham Two, the angels go to Sodom, but it is the Lord who speaks to Abraham. And I would say that this is the Lord Jesus, what is called the pre-incarnate Christ. Before the incarnation, he appears to Abraham. And by the way, if God is not Trinity, how can this one be Lord? Then who's, who's in heaven? Who's watching over creation? This is one of the three persons of the Trinity. In Genesis 32... We have the story of the man who wrestled with Jacob, at the end of which we read, So the Lord, or, so Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. So these appearances make sense of what we have seen, a plurality to God, not one person, but three persons.
Now, in some of the appearances in the Old Testament, the individual is referred to as the angel of the Lord. In the story of Samson, the angel of the Lord appeared to the wife of Manoah. She tells Manoah that the angel uh, said that she's going to have a son. He prays that the angel will return, which he does. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, we would like you to stay until we prepare a young goat for you. The angel of the Lord replied, even though you detain me, I will not eat of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, offer it to the Lord. Manoah did not realize it was the angel of the Lord. Then Manoah inquired the angel of the Lord, what is your name so that we may honor you when your word comes true? He replied, why do you ask my name? It is beyond understanding. By the way, some translations have, it is wonderful, that is full of wonder. Then Manoah took a young goat together with a grain offering and sacrificed it on a rock to the Lord. And the Lord did an amazing thing while Manoah and his wife watched. As the flame blazed up from the altar toward heaven, the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame. Seeing this, Manoah and his wife fell with their faces to the ground. When the angel of the Lord did not show himself again to Manoah and his wife, Manoah realized it was the angel of the Lord. We are doomed to die, he said to his wife. We have seen God. But his wife answered, if the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and grain offering from our hands, nor shown us all these things, or now told us this. It is only the Lord who is to be worshipped. You cannot give an offering to an angel. Only God is to be worshipped. This is the Lord. So in the Old Testament, we see things that might be confusing. Man, angel, the Lord. But what these demonstrate to us is that God is three persons. We have him in physical form appearing to his people. But what about the Trinity in the New Testament? The revelation, the revealing of God in scripture is progressive. It is cumulative. We see that what the New Testament tells us about Jesus and the Spirit, I think, fleshes out what we know of the Trinity. We are told two things about Jesus, his humanity and his divinity. The Gospels make it quite clear that Jesus was as fully human as you and I are. He wasn't like Superman. He's not in Clark Kent mode. That is, he puts on his glasses pretending that he can't see, or he pretends to be weak that he can't lift something. Um, Jesus was really human. It wasn't an affectation. Um, It was real. He had a human body. He was born as a child. He needed to grow up and develop physically. He was subject to the same limitations and vulnerabilities as any person. He got tired, we are told, hungry and thirsty. When he was flogged and beaten before his crucifixion, he was so weakened that somebody else had to carry his cross. And in the end, he died. But it isn't simply in his body, in his mind. We read that he grew in wisdom. He had human emotions, joy, sorrow, love, compassion, astonishment, and anger. He felt deep distress at the death of Lazarus. Jesus was human. But he was also divine. He is divine. The Gospels are equally clear that Jesus was fully divine. And again, this is only possible if, in fact, God is three persons, one God and three persons. John 1.1 tells us as much. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
We see this played out in the life of Jesus during his ministry. When he healed the paralytic, the one that they let down through the roof, he first said to him, My son, your sins are forgiven. People were surprised, some were offended, because only God can forgive sins. Well, Jesus is God. In John 8, I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, Before Abraham was born, I am. That is, he is the eternal God. And then in John 10, I and the Father are one. When Jesus appears after his resurrection, the second time, because remember the first time Thomas wasn't there, and Thomas said, listen, unless I can put my fingers in the hand, you know, the holes in his hands, and my, my hand in the wound in his side, I will not believe. And when Jesus appears, Thomas says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus doesn't say, no, 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 no what, what are you saying? That's not right. No, it is in fact the truth. He is divine. But also the Holy Spirit is seen as divine. Um, he is seen as both divine and a person. The divinity of the Spirit is assumed. Um, the Spirit is the divine agency through which God the Father works. The work of the Spirit is the work of God. And the presence of the Spirit is the presence of God. In Psalm 51, David prays a prayer of confession. He has committed adultery. He has committed murder. He's killed Uriah, the, wife, or the husband of Bathsheba. And he pleads, take not your Holy Spirit from me. That is, that God's presence would not be taken from him. In the New Testament, we see that how you treat the Holy Spirit is how you treat God. When Peter confronts Ananias about lying, they had sold a piece of property, Ananias and Sapphira, his wife, but they kept part of it back. And they said, this is what we sold it, or this is what we sold it for, but in fact it was uh, more. And Peter says, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men. You have lied to God. You've lied to the Holy Spirit. You've lied to God because the Spirit is, in fact, God. But secondly, the Spirit is also a person. The New Testament shows us that he is a person. It is easy for us, and I think... This might be the culture because we think of spirits as not really having personalities or being persons. Um, that we think of the spirit as a force. That somehow it's the energy that comes from God and we refer to it as spirit. And if we're not careful, we will refer to the Holy Spirit as it rather than he. But in our text here in John 14... We hear Jesus referring to the Spirit with a personal pronoun. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another comforter to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be or is with you. In the New Testament, the work of the Spirit is described in personal terms. He persuades, he prays, he testifies, he cries out, he creates, he judges, he has a mind, he can be blasphemed, he can be grieved. You can, in fact, 
in modern terms, hurt his feelings. But you can grieve the spirit. He's not a raw power, the force somehow that enables God to do the things that he wants to do. He's not a force that lives within us. He is a person who indwells us. He is divine and he is a person. Okay, this is all preliminary and is preparing us for the weeks to come. But let's do sort of a brief summary here. When we confess one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we commit ourselves to several rules for how we think about God, how we worship God, how we bear witness to God, how we participate in God's work, and how we come to understand the Christian faith. Let's be clear, and I do want to be clear, we will never fully comprehend or understand the one God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. Because if we did comprehend God fully, then in fact either we have reduced him to our size, manageable size, or in fact we have made ourselves equal with God. Therefore we are able to understand him. So we won't fully understand it. But let's, I think there are few things in life that we fully understand. And yet we use them or they are a part of what enables us to live. I have very, a very small idea of how a car engine works. And yet, get in the car, you either turn the key or you push a button and you put it in gear. I don't fully comprehend it and yet I can drive a car. In the same way, we cannot fully comprehend the Trinity, but in fact informs our lives. And in the weeks to come, I hope for us that we will see this. When we confess our belief in one God, Father, Son, and Spirit, we deny that they are all identical. The Father is not the Son. He is not the Spirit. And the Son is not the Father or the Spirit. And the Spirit is not the Father or the Son. Each one of these are distinct persons. Okay? They are differentiated, they are distinguished from each other. We also deny, as we saw earlier, that these are three names for three different gods. They are all divine, they have the same nature, um, but they are three persons. Three persons. The doctrine of the Trinity is not a mathematical formula. Nor is it somehow uh, we come up with some type of algorithm in which we can apportion to each of them certain aspects or certain works that they do. Um, as though each one of them was one-third God. That the Father is one-third God and the Son is one-third God and the Spirit is one-third God and put it all together and you have one God. No. One God in name and nature, three persons. The doctrine of the Trinity is a rule. It is a grammar for us to learn how to apply the language of the three and one to God in ways that faithfully witness both his own life revealed in us and God's work in creation and redemption. The doctrine of the Trinity... We will, I will say this numerous times in the weeks to come, the Lord willing. 
the doctrine of the Trinity is the basic grammar of Christian faith and life. And bad grammar leads to bad thinking and bad living. I am convinced that we oftentimes do not hear God speaking to us in our lives or in Scripture because we don't know the grammar. And when we speak to God, we speak with rather bad grammar because we don't realize that the basis, everything, the foundation is Trinity. That's the foundation. That's the grammar. I would suspect that most Christians think of God only as one and not as three. And usually they have a favorite among the three, either it's Jesus or the Spirit, um, such as we see uh, among some. For others it is the Father. But in fact, God is one and he is three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. This is the grammar of life. And if you don't understand this, it will lead to bad living and bad thinking. So the Lord willing, in the weeks to come, we will be exploring. Okay, if this is the grammar, how does this work out? How are we now to write complete sentences? How are we to speak? How are we to understand what it is God is saying? It's the foundation. It's, it's the basic building block of all reality. And if we don't understand this, we'll end up speaking some sort of pidgin language. A language with really bad grammar. God is gracious. He is so gracious that he puts up with our foolishness and our weakness. That is not an excuse for us to continue to do that. We must, in fact, learn to see that God is Father, Son, and Spirit and what that means for us. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are grateful that you have revealed yourself. And yet we confess that we're not always listening or paying attention. It is as though we've read the first few words of a sentence and we imagine we know how it will end. Or we've read the first chapter of a book and we assume we know where it's going. We end up with rather bad grammar. May we in the weeks to come see that you are the one true God, the creator of all things. They are a reflection of who you are. one and three one God and three persons and this is to inform how we live as human beings and how we live as your people may we not despair of not being able to understand it we certainly will not ever fully understand it but may this grammar guide us as we live our lives here on earth. Thank you for bringing us together today. Thank you that we've had an opportunity to speak to one another of joys and sorrows, 
of needs. And we're reminded of the husband of Ben's co-worker. That you, we ask you would touch him. And for the friends and family of this one, such an early age had a stroke. Comfort them and draw them to yourself. And for the wonderful news from Kim, we give thanks. As we leave this place today and go into the world, may your spirit go with us. He who lives within us, not a force, not an energy, but a person who is with us every step of the way. And it's because of the Lord Jesus that we're able to do this. And so we pray this through Jesus and in his name. Amen.